Now, we looked at chapter 1 a good bit, but uh, back in chapter 1, verse 19, really gives us a succinct outline of the rest of the book of Revelation. In verse 19, it says, write the things, this is Jesus speaking to John, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. So, first of all, the things which he had seen would be the things that he saw in chapter 1, just a few verses earlier. So, do you remember what he had seen? Well, we read it. He saw seven golden lampstands, and the Son of Man, whom he described as being clothed in a garment down to his feet. He was wearing a golden sash. His feet were like fine brass. He had hair white as wool, eyes like fire, a voice like Niagara, and a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. You remember those descriptions. That's what he saw, what he had seen, and he wrote it down. So write the things which you have seen. That's that. Second thing, he was to write down the things which are, the things which are. Everybody say the things which are. That's what we'll see in chapters 2 and 3. That's things that pertain to the seven churches of Asia Minor, and he was to write them down. And then he was instructed to write down the things which will take place after this. This would be the visions that he had in chapters 4 through 22. He was to write them down. So it's this nice, clean outline at the onset of this entire book, things which he had seen, which are, and the things that are to take place after this. Now, when we say the seven churches of Asia Minor, this is not continental Asia as we know it. This is the Roman province of Asia, which is pretty much contained in modern Turkey. And these epistles or these letters follow a format, a template. I mentioned that. Jesus addresses the church. He refers to himself in one of the ways that he's described in chapter 1. He issues a statement regarding the condition of the church. He issues a verdict. He issues a command. He issues a general admonition to all churches, and then he promises a reward. Now, these seven churches of Asia, or Asia Minor, were actual, real churches that existed in John's day. They constituted the things that are in that little outline. However, I believe these churches also represent and I mentioned it, touched on it last time, church ages throughout the centuries. And they provide a prophetic landscape, a prophetic picture, if you will, of the church throughout history. And there are two main reasons why I believe this. This is awesome. Number one, I believe this because Jesus chose these specific churches. In other words, out of hundreds of churches to whom he could have written, he chose to write to these seven. These seven. That's very significant. Why didn't he write to the church of Antioch? 
which was one of the most influential churches in the early days of the church, or the church at Rome, or Corinth, or Thessalonica, because they did not fit the prophetic composite that he was putting together, whereas these seven did. In the genius, in the omniscience of God, he knew exactly what was going on in these churches at the time and what was going to be going on in the church universal in the future. And by placing the letters in this particular order, he designed it so that each letter was just in the right order to describe the various ages from then, listen, until now, 2,000 years, which really is the second reason I believe this, but I'll specify a little bit. Second reason, I believe the letters speak beyond the local churches of John's day into the church ages because of the placement of the letters. In other words, because of the order in which they are written. Had they been written in any other order, then this would not work. They could not have applied to the historical church through the ages. We now can look back and see this. But remember, prophecy is looking at history before it happens. So John had no way of knowing this, but Jesus did. He said, write it down. You don't have to understand it, just write it down. And we also understand that seven is the number of completion. We see this throughout Scripture, and there are so many groupings of seven just in the book of Revelation alone. I think that you would fail to come up with them all. They're subtle, some of them, some of them are more obvious, like the seven uh, vials, the seven trumpets, the, the bowls, but there are many others, some more subtle, like I mentioned. And so, to me, this idea of the seven churches, this summarizes the entire church age. Now, also, I think it's important, as we are in the book of Revelation, to point this out. Prophecy is time-released. Remember those old contact sinus pills? Back in the day, children, there was a commercial and they would break open this capsule, and it had all these little tiny pills in it. Remember that? And, and it was time-released. Uh, contact was time-released. That was its secret. It, you, would, you would eat it, eat the pill, and, and it would, it would time-release. As needed, it would release. That's the way revelation is. That's the way prophecy is. In Daniel 12 and verse 4, the Lord said this to Daniel. He said, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. In other words, until the time, the generation to which these words belong, then it will unfold. It will be revealed then. He, later in Daniel 12, verses 8 and 9, Daniel says this, although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. It's time release. Prophecy's time release. John didn't understand everything he was writing down. 
Remember the line in what we call the Lord's Prayer where it says, give us this day our daily bread? Well, bread's a type of the word. Every day has a word, and every word has a day. There's a word for that time, for that frame of time. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. There's a proceeding word. There's a word for today. Jesus told the 12, this is in Matthew 13. Jesus told the 12, many prophets desired to to understand a look into the prophecies tucked away in the Bible, in the word, but it wasn't revealed yet. And then Jesus looked to the 12 and he said, but to you it has been given. Jesus was saying the prophets wanted to understand the word. The prophets wanted to get it, but it wasn't time for it to be revealed. Like we saw with Daniel. I want to understand this. He said, just seal it up, son. It's not for you or your day, but it will be for a generation. So in the time of Jesus, the 12 wanted to see it. It's interesting because he says that the hard-hearted would not get the revelation that was available for the day. But he said, but you are hungry for it. You desire it, and therefore you see it. So the idea is this. If the word has been revealed for a time, for a, uh, for a, if we're in the season where the word is available, are you with me? If you're in the season where the word is available, then here's how you're going to get it. You're hungry. You're open, you're humble, you're willing to to sell whatever you held on to as truth and buy the truth and sell it not. You're willing to lay down what you thought was true for what's being revealed as truth. But the way to not see it is to say, I'm fine just the way I am. I don't need to understand. And you won't. And so prophecy is time released. And God is just so amazing in the way that he implants truth for specific periods of time. Now, God's outside of time space. He's not limited to it. And so he can do that. He's omniscient, omnipresent. He understands things because he's been there, done that. He's everywhere all the time. And so time space is not a problem. And he embeds things in the word of God. I love the way Chuck Missler puts it. The Bible is supernatural. Listen to this. I'm going to read you a quote. The Bible is a message system. It's not simply 66 books penned by 40 authors over thousands of years. The Bible is an integrated whole which bears evidence of supernatural engineering in every detail. The Jewish rabbis have a quaint way of expressing this very idea. They say that they will not understand the scriptures until the Messiah comes. But when he comes, he will not only interpret each of the passages for us, they say, he will interpret the very words. He will even interpret the very letters themselves. In fact, he will even interpret the spaces between the letters. The rabbis say that there are certain passages of Scripture that have emphasis, that have dramatic effect built into it. They're to be sung. At some times, uh, at some places, they're to be sung loud. In other places, they're to be said soft. It's for emphasis, and there's revelation even in that. 
Chuck Missler says, when I first heard this, I simply dismissed this as a colorful exaggeration until I reread Matthew 5, 17, 18. Think not that I have come to destroy the Torah, Jesus said, and the prophets. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot, the Hebrew there is yot, or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. That's, that's the equivalent for us of the dotting of an I or the crossing of a T. Are you with me? Let me give you some remarkable revelation stuff, Bible stuff. The structure of the Scripture itself is supernatural. An example of this is found in Genesis chapter 5. We just came out of this. I wish I had this when we were there. We have the genealogy of Adam through Noah. This is one of those chapters which, you know, you yawn. You're going through the genealogy. You know, it's the boring parts of the Bible. But really, there's reward for the diligent student. In the Hebrew, Adam means man. Seth, this is the genealogy that's given in Genesis 5. Adam means man. Seth means appointed. Enosh means mortal. Kenan means sorrow. These are the names mentioned in the genealogy. Seven of them. Mahaliel, the blessed God. Jared shall come down. Enoch, teaching Methuselah. His death shall uh, bring Lamech, the despairing Noah, rest or comfort. And you put it together, that genealogy, listen, it's the gospel. Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. In a genealogy, and you can't tell me that a bunch of rabbis got together and said, let's embed the Christian gospel in our scriptures. Right? I'll give you another one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I'm going to spend some time on this, not tonight, but sometime later. I can't pronounce all the Hebrew words, but in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I can't even pronounce this Hebrew, but the way the letters are shaped, all of this is very significant, but basically it's saying sun, God, tooth, like sun, S-O-N, God is in the lettering here, tooth or destroyed or devour, hand, cross. Genesis 1-1, the Son of God will pierce through the hands on the cross. Embedded in Scripture, the gospel hidden, God's incredible. So if he can do that, he can put the church ages in seven churches in these letters in the book of Revelation. Here's what I believe these churches represent. Number one, Ephesus, the apostolic church from 33 to 100 A.D. Smyrna, the persecuted church from 100 to 312. Pergamum, the church under the church-state union, Constantine, etc., 312 to 590. Thyatira, the church of the Dark Ages, 590 to 1517. Sardis, the church of the Reformation, 1517, 1750. Philadelphia, the Church of Revival and Great Awakening, 1750-1925. Laodicea, the lukewarm church from 1900 until the tribulation. So let's dive into this and take a look at it. We'll start with Ephesus. Are you with me? Woo, here we go. So the first verse, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write. I'm going to read this entire Ephesus letter, and then we're going to take it apart. 
to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Listen to Jesus, our sweet, lovely Jesus, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give him to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. He is the last Adam. He's that gardener. Mary Magdalene, suppose she saw, and he speaks of that garden of Eden that is to come. Ephesus was a wealthy port city in like I said, modern Turkey, where the Kester River flows into the Mediterranean. It's a lot like around here. It's swampy, a lot of swamp ground, especially back then. But the central city was located on two hills that served as a natural breezeway to blow away the mosquitoes. So it had this mosquito-free zone in the middle of the city. At the time of our reading, Ephesus had a population of about 300,000 people and was the seat of the Roman proconsul or the Roman local government for all of Asia. It had a theater. Listen to this. Ephesus had a theater that would seat almost a tenth of its population, 25,000 people. It was also the center of an ancient pagan cult that worshipped a meteorite that was thought to have come down from Zeus. It was the center of worship for the huntress, the fertility goddess Artemis, or Diana. Her temple was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens with 120 or so pillars that were 60 feet tall, these columns. It had a base of over 100,000 square feet. It was a, a magnificent work of architecture. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The priest also handled money. You could deposit your money in the temple of Artemis. They were, some say, the world's first international bankers. They also maintained about a thousand temple prostitutes in this temple of Artemis. Ephesus had a library before the printing press with over 200,000 volumes. And incidentally, and this is just a, a little known fact that I found in my study, There was a tunnel that went from the library to what was called the main way or main street, which was filled with brothels. There was a tunnel from the library to the brothels. So I guess, you know, guys would say, "Uh, well, I'm at the library, you know what I mean? And uh, okay, maybe I shouldn't have said that. But I found that in my studies. Interesting. This is where the church of Ephesus was born. That's my point. 
It was a mess. It was a messy situation. But God doesn't care about a mess. He can clean up a mess, right? His blood knows how to wash clean. We just sang about it. He knows how to wash white. Verses 1 through 7 of, listen, listen to this. I, I want to I look at the, the beginning of this church at Ephesus. I think it bears taking a look at uh, verses 1 through 7 of Acts 19. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So there's something about these men that communicated to Paul that they had discipline in their lives. And he said, uh, wow, you look familiar. Have you received the Holy Spirit? They said, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? Obviously, you've joined something. So they said, into John's baptism. This is John the Baptist. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. They spoke with tongues and prophesied. And there were about 12 in all. So I, I, I'm fascinated by this. Paul doesn't get nostalgic and, and try to connect dots and say, well, John was Jesus' cousin. Jesus said that John was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. And guess what? I've met Jesus. I mean, he may have said that, but it's definitely not recorded here as some kind of connect point or anything vital to the text. Paul says, listen, that's cool that you've been baptized into John's baptism, but there's more. There's more. Uh, I just, I'm glad that folks did not leave me unbaptized in Jesus' name, but they pushed me to get baptized in Jesus' name. I'm glad they didn't leave me not filled with the Holy Ghost, not being a tongue talker, and they're like patting me on the head and saying, that's okay, it's all right. You're okay, I'm okay, we're all okay. No, they said, there is more, Donovan, and they pushed me until I was filled with the Holy Spirit. They didn't placate me and just find common ground. They led me to the ground we did not have in common, to uncommon ground, and it turned out to be holy ground. Twelve men complied, made the trip. This was the beginning of the church at Ephesus. But not everybody was happy about this. Acts 19 again, verse 9, but when some were hardened and did not believe. See that? It was revealed, but they had hardened their hearts and did not believe. They did, they chose not to believe. They hardened their hearts, but spoke evil of the way, that's the gospel message, before the multitude. He departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. He rents a school. He did mobile church. They had a set-up, a tear-down team. We've been there, done that. I'm willing to do it again, Lord. But in Jesus' name, if, you, if, there's any, if this cup can pass from me, let it pass from me, Lord. But he did this for a couple years. He the school, uh, again, Acts 19, and this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. 
Why am I going through this? Because I want to show you the power in which this church was started. It was we we've looked at that the 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 aprons and that kind of thing. It's amazing. I wish I could go there tonight. I can't. So so Paul taught and God moved. You know why? Because when you teach and preach the word, God confirms the word with signs following. Why should we not expect the supernatural? If we teach the word, if we preach the word, if we preach something other than the word, then we have nothing for God to confirm. But if we're faithful to the truth, if we're faithful to the text, I'm telling you, God will show up every time and confirm the word with signs following. And so here we have an influence that came from that felt throughout all of Asia, Asia Minor, both Jews and Greeks. Ephesus was also filled with demonic activity. This is where the seven sons of Sceva were. Remember when Paul goes to this demon-possessed fellow and he says, come out of him? Well, seven sons of Sceva go to a guy and they say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, they tried to cast out demons. And you know the rest of the story. They were exorcists. Like, I don't know if they had a shingle that said exorcisms here. If it was like, you know, Madam Skiva, You know, like, I don't know if it was palm readers. I don't know what it was. They were exorcists. It looks like they were Jewish exorcists. I'm not sure. They supposedly had expertise in this. But when they tried to do this, the demons, on that man beat them all up. They almost died. They Because the Spirit said, I know Jesus, I know Paul, but I don't know who you are. So they weren't known in hell, whereas Paul and Jesus were. Filled with demonic activity. Ephesus was filled with witchcraft. Many of the books in its library, 200,000 volumes in the library, many of them were all about witchcraft, sorcery, spells, paganism. When the revival broke out in Ephesus, it says they burned books that were valued at 50,000 coins. It depends on who you look at, but that's probably several million dollars. It was incredible. Verse 1, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. To the angel. Who is the angel? I wish I could tell you with certainty, but I can't. Some say it's the pastor, the messenger, the overseer. To the angel, to the pastor of the church of Ephesus. And that is a genuine possibility. But it could also be literally to an angel of the Most High God who is assigned to this church. It is my personal belief that not only are angels, not only are pastors assigned to churches, God has given some to be pastors, but I believe there are angels assigned to congregations as well. I think there are angels in this room right now. I really do. So it says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus. I love the idea of it being an angel of the Most High God, an angel of the Lord, because his assignment 
is to the church at Ephesus. If that's the case, then there is an angel of the church of Life Point. One angel in the Old Testament killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. One angel is going to put the devil in a pit one day. Angels are mighty. Angels are powerful. We don't worship angels, but they're pretty cool, okay, and they're good to have on your team. Because the other side has demonic activity, right? So it makes sense that if Ephesus was filled with demonic activity, there would be angelic activity, right? So to the angel of the church of Ephesus. And then Jesus is described from one of those descriptions from the first chapter. He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Those stars are the church. Those golden lampstands represent the church, the churches. And it's interesting, he's in the midst, and also the churches are in his hand. So Jesus is with us in his presence, but he's also in control. We're in his hand, and he is with us. If it was that way with Ephesus, it's that way with Life Point. See, there's a local application, but there's a general application as well. He is with us in his presence. We feel his presence. Even when we don't feel his presence, his presence is here. But he's also controlling and moving. We talked about that with, with, with Sister Jackson right here, with, with, with Chris down in Houston, the way the, the hand of God moved and connected her to Gabriel, our first member, and the rest is history. It's just amazing. God is in control. He's moving the pieces. The events in your life are not just happenstance. The hand of God can be seen through it all. Amen? Amen. So he's in the midst, but we're also in his hand. I think it's interesting. The lampstands are not the light itself, but they are the light bearers. That's the idea. When Jesus said, you're the light of the world, it's, it's his light shining through us. We are to bear light. They were bearing light. Verses 2 and 3. I know your works, your labor, your patience, but you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. It's interesting here. Jesus said, I know your works, your labor, your patience. The idea is your steadfastness. If he knew theirs, folks, he knew ours. He knows ours. You can fool everybody in the building. You can't fool Jesus. God is watching you. I heard one man say his granddaughter ask him, Papa, does God see everything I do? Papa said, it's a good answer. He loves you so much he can't take his eyes off you. He's not looking to slam you. He's looking to help you. But he sees it all. He sees it all. I know your works. They had worked they had labored. They had been steadfast. Now, notice, they did not bear those who were evil. 
they tested those who said they were apostles and were not and found them to be liars. That's interesting. There were those who came in the church who were evil, and they did not bear them. What does that mean? We'll see in a moment. And they tested those who said they were apostolic or apostles and found them to be liars. In other words, they weren't gullible. You know, we got a problem in modern church. People are just so gullible. The, the Lord told me to tell you this. And we're like, oh, did he? Did he really tell somebody to tell you? You know, you can get tripped up for years over some word that somebody gave you that really didn't come from the Lord. John, who's writing this, in his epistle said, test the spirits, see if they are of God. And so here he said, you, you tested those. They said, oh, we're apostles, we're apostolic. This is what says the Lord. And they said, no, you're a liar. Looks to me like they were pretty confrontational, right? They were pretty confrontational. But you know what? That's not a bad thing. It's really not. They weren't placating people. Notice, though, where they got it from. I I, I hate to do this, but we won't do this on all the churches because they don't all have the same kind of detail. But Acts chapter 20, you ought to go read Acts 18, 19, 20, and you'll get a a real composite of the church of Ephesus. But, But listen to this from Acts chapter 20, verse 17. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Miletus was a town maybe 20 miles away or so, and Paul was wanting to bid farewell to the elders of the church. And rather than go back into Ephesus, maybe to cause a scene or maybe the crowd, he had the elders of the church, because they had appointed elders, he had them come to Miletus, was, uh, which was another port city, actually a competition to Ephesus. Ephesus port eventually would get silted up and, and not be functional. Matter of fact, today it's like six miles inland. But, but uh, Miletus was a sister port and, and became a, a leading port city. He goes to Miletus. And, and he calls for the elders of the church, and they came to him, and then he begins to talk to them. This is his swan song. I preached about it before. He, he's about to, to go away and never see them again, and, and he says to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humil- humility, with many tears, trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. In other words, I taught you in the public square at the school of Tyrannus, but I also went oikos to oikos, house to house, household to household, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God, faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see now, I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying, the chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me. This is the cloth, folks, from which we've been cut. Listen to that. The Holy Spirit's. there's a prophecy going out everywhere I go saying, chains and tribulations, tough times await you, but I'm not moved, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race, my assignment with joy. And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. 
This is his swan song. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, listen, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God at Ephesus, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves, this is 50 years prior to Revelation chapter 2. After my departure, savage wolves, listen to the terminology, savage wolves will come in among you, among the sheep, not sparing the flock. They're ruthless. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn you, everyone, night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, Yes, you yourselves know that these hands are provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord that he said, it's more blessed to give than to receive, which, by the way, you won't find that in the Scripture anywhere except right here. In other words, in the Gospels, there's no quote from that, of that. But Paul knew about it. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more, and they accompanied him to the ship. That's exactly what happened. We see this in Revelation. And they did exactly what he told them to do. I love that. You see that? They saw it coming, and they heeded the warnings of Paul. Now, I love this about Paul. The responsibility had been on Paul, the blood being on his hands. But he said, I don't have any blood on my hands anymore. The reason why is because he had faithfully discharged his duty. And he, he had shared the gospel. He had transferred the responsibility from himself to those who had never heard the gospel. And then it was on them. Their blood was on their hands now. I, I just want to point out. There's people outside these walls that are going to hell. And we have a responsibility. You're going to hear me saying that more and more. You don't hear that in the modern church so much anymore. But it's not just a competition trying to grow bigger than the local church down the street. Or it's not trying to get the coolest church. or It's, not, it's trying to keep people from going to hell. Because there's people going to hell. And it's about telling them about Jesus. It's about persuading them to believe, to trust, to abandon whatever they thought was truth and grab a hold of the truth of Jesus, to turn to him, to be water baptized in Jesus' name, like the church at Ephesus, to be filled with the Holy Ghost speaking in tongues, like the church at Ephesus. Who are we to say otherwise? It's people's blood that will be on our hands unless we share the gospel. I love this. Paul's missionary journey cost him. It was not easy filled with many tears, many trials, conspiracies against him. The reason why he suffered was because he told the truth. 
Paul said of Ephesus, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. That's what he called that spirit world, that atmosphere. The 12 apostles were beaten in Acts 5.41, and they said, we rejoice because we were worthy to suffer for his name. They were teaching and preaching the truth of his name, and it cost them. And it's the same with Paul at Ephesus, and those elders had fought well at Ephesus. The church has become soft. We don't want to fight well. We don't want to be persecuted. We don't want to suffer. We don't even want to be embarrassed. We back off, talk ourselves out of confrontation, choose easy paths, settle for temporary pleasures at the expense of others' eternity. In America, we spend more money on Halloween costumes for our pets, I've said this before, than we do on missions to Muslim nations. Think about that. But this is Paul talking to these leaders, imparting impact on them. I love it. Now, verses 4 through 5, listen. Nevertheless, I have this against you. Nevertheless kind of negates everything else. He's like, compliment, 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 but. You ever been in one of those conversations where you're talking to somebody and they're like building you up and then you sense it, you're like really kind of buying into it. You're like, I think not. And then you realize like intuitively you know, oh, the other shoe's about to drop. And they go, now, having said that, here we go. Here's the real thing you wanted to say. Nevertheless, he says, I have this against you. Now, it's not that Jesus didn't mean that stuff before, but he's saying, I do have something against you. You have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, your church will cease to exist unless you repent. You have left. It doesn't say they lost their first love. If you lose something, you don't always know where it is, how to find it. But if you left it, you know where you left it. They left their first love. They had abandoned, it says, the first works. Jesus said they had fallen. And his advice was, you need to remember and you need to repent. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works or your church will cease to exist. They had become, at least from my perspective, they had become mechanical, methodical. They were technicians, clinicians, but they had lost the love and the fire and the passion of Jesus. The stuff that drives you to be silly and goofy and sacrifice without even considering it to be a sacrifice, that's first love stuff. I could tell you some stories about when Valerie first fell in love with me. 
She got silly and goofy. As a matter of fact, I was engaged to another woman. And she was dating my fiance's brother. But her affection shifted over to me. And I got to be honest with you, I noticed her out of the corner of my eye. And then her Aunt Linda said, well, why don't you invite him to go out to eat on a date? And Linda gave her a two-for-one coupon to a Mexican restaurant in Shreveport called Nicky's. And Valerie came up to me and was talking to me about some things, and she said, well, why don't we talk about it over lunch or dinner? As a matter of fact, I have a two-for-one coupon here. Maybe we could go out to eat and talk about it. And I said, yeah, that's a good idea. Now, Brendan, I'm about to get married in about a month. This is, I don't advise this unless it's the right thing. You got to get that two-for-one coupon, brother. It was silly and goofy, man. We went out to eat, you know, and the next thing I know, I'm like, what am I doing? You know, like, I, it's Valerie's the one. So you talk about an earthquake that broke out in my hometown. It, it was just a, but you know what? It was worth it. And we were silly and goofy and in love, and it was just crazy. It was just crazy. Valerie, she was even sillier than I was, you know, just drooling around me and stuff. It was crazy. It was crazy. It was silly. It was that first love. When you first came to the Lord, how did you feel about him, huh? When you first got the revelation of who he was and what he had done for you, what did it do for you? Didn't it shake you to your core? Wasn't it silly? Wasn't it goofy? You were a theological idiot, really, and you're like trying to, Jesus loves you. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. I, well, God's, Jesus is God, but I mean, he sent his son, I don't get that. But anyway, he died on a cross, he raised from the death for your sins. It's awesome, I love him, I love him, I love him, I love him, I love him. It was first law stuff. First law, it was goofy, it was silly. It was like, I'll tithe, I'll tithe, I'll give more, I'll give all my money. Uh, and then you didn't have any money to pay your bills, you know, and you're like, I thought God would come through, I don't understand. I just love him so much, man, I just love him. And we got evicted, amen. Praise the Lord, God's so good. It's awesome, power's off, I love him so much. You know, you were growing, you were, it was silly, it was goofy, it was first love. He said, remember that, because if you don't, your church will cease to exist. God help us, let us not get so systemized and, and so clinical and so technical. Systems and processes running the show, we're just a machine. Let there be a heart, let there be passion. We may get some things wrong, trust me, listen, I'm not condoning false doctrine. We may miss it here and there, but we're going to keep our heart open and pure before the Lord with all of our, our, our ability. We want to love him. If I speak with the tongues of men or of angels and I have not love. See, it wasn't just a love for God. It was a love for people. They lost the love for Jesus' people. That's what put you on the mission in the first place. It wasn't just theological Jesus, missiological people, it was, I love him. He loves people. I love people. 
tell somebody. That was the explosive beginnings of the church at Ephesus. Demonic, immoral. Tunnel from the library to the brothel. Temple of Artemis, absolute perversity. Church explodes. People resist. Doesn't matter. There's so many of them, they're burning three, four million dollars worth of books. Temple of Diana. Listen, it continued. The Temple of Diana continued under Paul's ministry, but eventually it said that John, Eusebius, and some other historians from the day talk about how that John left Patmos. He was on Patmos for about 10 years, went back to Ephesus, traveled, walked into the Temple of Diana, and prayed a short prayer, cursed that thing. An earthquake hit that temple, and its influence has faded to this day. It's amazing. So he said, remember and repent. Even an apostolic church can get it right in some ways and still be in danger of losing it all in other ways. God help us. They had gotten cold. Now, it gives them a compliment, verses 6 and 7. But this you have, in other words, we would say, this you have going for you that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Again, lovely Jesus. Can you imagine you're a Nicolaitan and Jesus says, I hate. Notice he doesn't hate the Nicolaitans, but he hates the deeds, the deeds of the Nicolaitans. He who has an ear, here's a general admonition, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, who are the Nicolaitans? Some say this is a sect that came from a deacon that was appointed in Acts chapter 6. And you can go look that up sometime. But in Acts chapter 6, in verse 5, it said, uh, uh, Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Pacorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And they say this Nicholas uh, perverted the truth, joined forces with another compromiser referred to as Balaam in another church. They joined up with another compromiser, a prophetess called Jezebel in another church. And this unholy alliance undermined all the apostles, what they stood for, and and formed uh, an unholy non-apostolic Alliance, uh, an anti-apostolic uh, consortium working together to destroy all the apostles had worked so hard to establish. To establish. Now, <clears throat> this same guy Nicholas was picked by the apostles, which is interesting. If they, if he's the one that turned against them and went rogue, but. I'm not exactly sure if that's who that is, the Nicolaitans. Some say that that is the idea of the, the wording there. It's two words put together in Greek, and it, it basically means people ruled. People ruled. And it would be the idea of a professional clergy ruling laity. And, and so rather than a fivefold ministry, pastoral roles, etc., it was more of a, a, a clergy laity hierarchical 
dominating church system where people are told, don't read your Bibles, we'll tell you what to believe, that kind of thing. And, and there are parallels, and we're, we're going to revisit this as we get into Balaam <coughs> and Jezebel and Gnosticism. Let, let me go ahead and close this out. Stand with me right now. Verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give him to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. He who has an ear. Let me ask you something. You got an ear? I mean, I think I can say this. We all have an ear in here. The point is this. This is not just for this local church. He that has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is going to not only apply to Ephesus, this is going to apply to others at the time and throughout church history, even to us today. We can learn from this. What can we learn, Donovan? Well, I tell you what, we need to be advocates for truth. We need to be confrontational with evil. I was at the Capitol yesterday and got called out. My pastor, Jerry Dean, was in town opening the House of Representatives in prayer. And I was sitting in the House chamber, and a senator came and got me and called me out. And I was privileged to go into a little meeting in an office where there were some intense negotiations going on over a bill. And I got pulled into that because of a friend I had in there. Uh, it's a long story, but you talk about evil. Uh, you don't even, I mean, it's in the it's in the media right now, but it'll be like bestiality and all these different things that are in the news right now. And there's all kind of negotiations going on in this back room back here. Evil, right? And it takes a, a, a warrior to stand up and say, no, 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 not, not on my watch. It takes a warrior to stand for truth and say, no, I'm not going to go the way that everybody else is going, the easy way. I'm going to stand for the truth. I don't care if a hair lips the devil. I don't care if it fills the room or empties the room. I'm going to preach the truth. Like that kind of tenacity, we can learn from them. But we can also learn in all of our doing, working, standing for truth. Man, don't ever forget why you got in this in the first place, right? It wasn't to win theology wars. It was to love Jesus and fulfill your assignment and your calling. Hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Right? That's what it was all about. That's what it is all about. And it's still all about that today. He who has ears, hear it. Don't be hard-hearted. Hear the revelation. Hear the revelation. That church age closed. And another one's coming. Smyrna, we'll look at it. Things began to change rapidly. Amen. Close your eyes with me right now. Father, I thank you, God. Lord, that you still speak to us from these letters to churches that are 2,000 years in our history. God, you're alive and well. Same Jesus, glorified, risen exalted one and you've made us kings and priests you purchased the church with your own blood and God we know this is not an easy assignment but it is one from the heart it is one we want to fulfill 
We have angels on our side. There are demons in a demonic world fighting against us. But we stand for the truth. But we do it, God, not forgetting from whence we came, not forgetting the pit out of which you dug us, Lord. And we're grateful. Help us to remember and repent when we're cold, God. Help us to remember our works and remember how far we've fallen from that high place. Maybe we were more ignorant and simple then, but God, we were on fire. Let us not lose that passion and that fire and that love. You can do more with that passion, God, than we can do with our sterile environments, Lord. Set this church on fire, God. Fill it up. Fill it up again. Fill it up again, Lord. We give you praise for it in Jesus' name. Come on, lift your hands to them right now. Come on, church, remember your first love. Remember when you first came around. Remember when God first got a hold of you, how radical you were, tripping and stumbling all over the place and trying to tie a couple of theological truths together. But you've come to know Him more now. But don't forget the reason you came to know Him in the first place. Thank you, Lord. I was a disciple of something else, but a man told me about Jesus. And I submitted to that water grave, and I was raised to life, filled with your spirit, God. Started a new journey, God. Changed everything about me, Lord. I don't want to forget it 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, 70 years down the road, Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Give him a hand clap of praise. Can you do it right now? Thank you, Jesus. He's a good God. He's a good God. Amen.